This episode is brought to you by HealthMate Saunas. After much research and study into finding ways to increase my energy, all answers pointed towards incorporating saunas into my recovery. Infrared saunas differ from traditional saunas because they warm you from the inside out. Saunas provide deep relaxation and boost that energy through increased blood flow and also cleanse the system, release toxins and provide a deep detox. For me, I use my sauna at the end of a tough workout or after a busy working day. And of course, having the sauna conveniently in my house removes all obstacles of making it part of my weekly routine. I simply plug in my HealthMate to the usual household plug and I'm ready to go. But why is a HealthMate better than any other infrared sauna? HealthMate are the global market leader in infrared saunas and have been for the last 40 years. They're the only company to offer a patented infrared technology which guarantees that infrared penetrates deep beneath the skin, critical to getting our health benefits. They only use green and sustainable materials on their saunas and are the only company to offer an unconditional lifetime warranty. Personally, I have a two-person cabin, but there are a variety of models, shapes, and sizes that can work for you, all available at health-mate.co.uk. Go to their website to get yours. This is Take Flights with Mark Whittle. Welcome to Take Flight. I'm Mark Whittle, former city worker turned performance coach, and this is your place for inspiration, and education on ways to optimize your performance and find your purpose. The most powerful force in the world is to be consistent with your identity. If the shoes don't fit, take them off. You can lie to everyone else, but you can't lie to yourself. You need to trade your expectations for appreciation. You know, we only live once. When all is said and done, the only thing you have left is your memories. Welcome to season 14 of Take Flight. To those who have been with us for a while, thank you so much for your continued support. And for newcomers, I'm really pleased you're here. The good news is you have over 140 episodes to listen to on top of this, with the likes of Eddie Hearn, Spencer Matthews, Victoria Pendleton, Sir Clive Woodward, Sir Steve Redgrave, Dame Jane and Guardia, and so many more. All these conversations are geared towards coaching you to discover your purpose, and importantly, empower you to take action towards it. And whether you've been here from day one, or are new to Take Flight, I'm delighted to share the team and I have just launched takeflightworld.com, our brand's new website. I'll put the link in the show notes for you to take a look. And there you can keep up with all things Take Flight and join our new Take Flight newsletter, where we've spent a huge amount of time creating exclusive content just for you, including insights into coaching practice I use with my clients and on myself, new routines I'm trying and challenges we can undertake together, book recommendations, updates on all events scheduling and speaking dates, of course, first access to new podcast episodes and so much more. Just go to takeflightworld.com and sign up via the pop-up or at the foot of any page. But without further ado, the guest for episode 140 is the one and only Johnny Nelson the face of Sky Sports Boxing. I drove to Johnny's house in Sheffield to record this conversation. We had such a great day. Johnny is the longest reigning world cruiserweight champion of all time, defending his title 13 times against 13 different opponents, more than any other cruiserweight in history. 
a record which still stands to this day. He has one of the most outstanding stories going from broken home and essentially broken mind, mostly overcome by fear, to entering the boxing ring in his youth, learning what he was capable of, building self-confidence and taking over the boxing world. After his stellar 20-year career, Johnny joined the Sky Sports team, notoriously hosting the show Gloves Are Off, where the two fighters sit face-to-face -face during fight week as part of the build-up to share their predictions, leaving only Johnny to mediate, and also hosting other shows such as Ringside, a similar but slightly less feisty affair. Of course, Johnny's also part of every major live event on the evening too. Let's be honest, it isn't a serious boxing event unless Johnny is sat in the pundit seat. It's such an amazing story. He's such a kind and genuine guy who's achieved amazing things in the ring and has arguably established an even more successful career in media outside of it. I really felt this conversation. I hope you do too. Please enjoy the one, the only, Johnny Nelson. Johnny, welcome to the Take Flight Podcast. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me on. Hey, thanks for having me. What <laughs> no a space. No problem at all. Came up to, so we're in the north of England. Yeah. Came up with the M1. Easy, actually. God country. God yeah. country. It's God's country. <laughs> Sun shines here all the time. Mate, it is blue skies <laughs> out here. And the, the land that you live on is unbelievable. Yeah. And I've got a nice welcome with the dog pissing on my bag. <laughs> no, I bet. Uh, well, when you pulled through the gate, uh, only a few people know, like my ex-wife lives next door and her mm. boyfriend's there, my daughter's there. And so I thought, just to get the shock expression on your face, yes, that's my ex-wife, that's her boyfriend. You're like, what the? <laughs> but it's actually, it's actually a really good setup. Uh, yeah, we get really well. It's it a good, feels it. It's calm. I actually, I had COVID uh, a few months ago and, uh, and it really knocked me back. I was in a bad way. And I really appreciated having my family around. So even though my wife and myself aren't together, everybody, they, they looked out for me, like the kids had come and leave food at the door. Debbie had come and leave food at my door. I woke up one morning, my daughter would like come in with a mask on, mm. four o'clock in the morning to check my temperature. And I actually felt I really appreciated having someone around. And then I thought, what about the people that haven't got people around? Especially in times like now when people are just trying to avoid everybody. I just appreciated the things I probably took for granted. And uh, it's just it's just nice, it's nice. It's funny that we need that though, don't we? We need that shock or something. Yeah. I don't know if you want to say something bad to happen, but something to like a bit of a setback. Yeah, it has actually made me look at things differently. And um, it's really nice. And I think when people come in and look from the outside in, they think, oh my God, how's that work? But it actually works really well. Mm. And it, I couldn't wish for anything better. It's interesting because not this isn't a relationship podcast, but yeah. <laughs> you know, in the modern world, we are becoming more and more accepting of things like divorce and breakups, and it is just a natural part of life. And a lot of people, I think, in the past stayed in relationships unhappy because you just feel like it's just not an option. Yeah, I've actually spoke on podcasts about this thing, and, and it's about the breakdown of, of relationships. And I think with the lockdown itself, it's probably made a lot of people realise they're living with somebody they don't want to live with or appreciate what they've got. And it's, it's understanding. If you're in a relationship and that relationship, the romance of that relationship has gone, you no longer love that person as though you, you first loved them, then it, and you split. Of course, it's going to be a bit awkward and a bit uncomfortable because you've got to adjust a, a, a new norm. But you create your own norm. And Debbie and I, uh, when we split up, at first it was, it was just hard uh, for both of us because there was a lot of tension, there was a lot of uh, bad feeling. And then I actually thought, you know what? 
actually, we, what, why we like this? You know, if we, we, we just don't want to be with each other. We've got kids together. And actually, it's funny, but I, uh, I apologised to her. I said, you know what, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for not being the husband I should have been. Mm. I'm sorry for changing this course of your life. And it was a complete U-turn of how our relationship was because it wasn't to get back with it, it was to actually acknowledge, look, you know, we, we, we've been good together, you know, we're not going to be together, but, but I'm sorry for, for letting you down, and, but we're still a family. Family's family no matter what. So, so and I said, you know, I want you to be happy, I want you to be with somebody, I want you to do something, and vice versa. And it actually, it actually works so well. It actually, it, it's brilliant. And, uh, and a boyfriend's a nice guy, and I think, please, Debbie, don't mess it up. Don't mess it up. He's a nice guy. <laughs> uh, we're just family. And once you can get your head around that part of it, especially guys, you've got to get your head around that part of it. You don't have to. There doesn't have to be any animosity, because you are you have created this unit, this family, and so just because you're no longer romantically uh, entwined with that your partner, it doesn't mean it have to be horrible. Yeah. You just think, you know what? That's how it was. We had a great time. Boom, done. We get on better now than we did when we were together. And, and a lot, I speak to a lot of guys about it. I think, look, just park it. Yeah. You know, park, park the wrongs, park the rights. You know, think about what you've created together and think about your own norm. This is normal for us uh, and it works really well. Mm. I just speaking there, like, I felt a little bit of resistance in myself. I think that that would be one of the biggest challenges because you're parking your ego. Yes, ego is the biggest enemy. Yeah. Biggest enemy. It's the biggest downfall. And mm. ego in anything, in relationships, in jobs, in, in in especially sport. If you cannot control that ego, the ego will control you. And and it's great if you want to be a boxer and you want to be braggadocious, you want to learn everything. But in the real world, unless you're a multi-millionaire, you've got money to say that to people. You don't have to answer to people. It can be your downfall. So something once you get your ego in check especially in the real world, that's in relationships, your relationships can be so much better because you think, what is it? You know, mm. what, what difference does it make? Yeah. You know, you've just got to get yourself in check. You're no less of a man or no less of a woman, uh, but you've got to get your ego in check. Use common sense. Have a good heart. Think right. Think, well, how would I want to be treated? Mm-hmm. And I, I speak to a lot of guys. I, can't, I, I don't know how women think, but I speak to a lot of guys, and I say, boys, sometimes, if you mess up, own your shit. Yeah. Only shit say, you know what, I messed up there. Because you don't realise how much it actually is appreciated by your ex-partner to say, you know, he's acknowledged where he's gone wrong. And we actually laugh and joke about it. And I think I gave him a phone once and she went, oh my God, you've never done this when we were married. (laughs) But we can laugh and joke about things because we know who we are, we know where we are. And it doesn't have to be that way, especially if you've got kids. Mm. And that's, that's like not hiding from your truth, isn't it? Because yeah. a lot of us just bury that stuff because we're either embarrassed or ashamed maybe yeah. as well. Or we, or we lie. Yeah. Or we lie and, and, and live that lie. But people on the outside, when they see it, they struggle to comprehend it. Mm-hmm. But if you live it, when, when my friends and people come and they see how we all interact, do you think, God, you know what? I wish I was like this with my ex. Mm-hmm. And it is cool. I keep mixing the name up with my sister mixing my sister's name with because we are family yeah you forget about what we were but we look at what we've created and so and this is how i look at it i care for her like i care for my sister i care for her because we're family and we spent most of our adult life with each other so we know each other better than anybody and it's just it's probably hard for anybody else coming into your life and and i probably feel for a boyfriend a little bit but he's a he's a nice guy and i think 
please just 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 take the ride, man. Just hold on tight. You'll be all right here. Yeah? Uh, but it's good. It's all right. So so what have you created, Johnny? And what's what's your life look like? What have you designed for yourself? So you know whether you talk about the working week and your commitments with Sky and other things that you're doing in the media, your training, your, your lifestyle. What what does your life look like? Well. In boxing, I wasn't a natural fighter. I This career found me more than anything else. I was forced on that path. Uh, and you always find when you look in the news at, at sportsmen, ex-sportsmen, any sport, they struggle after they mm -hmm. finish their sport. And they struggle because you've got to be a different kind of beast. And I'm not saying we're superhuman or what's super, It's like probably being in the army. It's wrong of me to compare it being in the army. But you've got to have a different kind of mindset when you're doing your sport. And you've got to be selfish. You've got to think selfishly if you want to get to the very top. But that kind of mentality doesn't work in the real world. That selfishness doesn't work in the real world. So therefore, if you carry that ego uh, or you carry that attitude, what you had in the sport that got you to the top, into the real world, it doesn't work. Mm -hmm. so, so then you've got to adjust. And you always find out a lot of ex-sportsmen and women after, for the first five years when they retire from the sport, that's when the shit hits the fan. Yeah. Drink, drugs whatever, you always hear that Rocky story, it's hard to adjust to civilian life. I know it sounds stupid. And so you've got to create your own happiness. Now, for me, I wasn't, boxing didn't identify me. Mm -hmm. I, I was, I, to me, I was like, I was, I was in, in a job and I'd, I'd experienced the things I experienced, but I never thought I'm a boxer. I thought I'm boxing. I'm just mm -hmm. having a good boxing. So when I sit around, I can remember going to, um, we were traveling somewhere, there was me, David Hay, Carl Froch, I think Matthew Macklin, and they were all talking about boxing when they represented the country and they traveled to Kakistan. And I'm like, started thinking, shit, I shouldn't be in this conversation here. And I actually felt as though I shouldn't be there. Even though I achieved everything I achieved, I, I actually, I never thought I was one of them because I thought, you guys have done so well, oh my goodness. And it was like, I was fascinated like a fan. Even though I'd, I'd set a record of defense as a world champion, I just looked at their pedigree and what they'd done. So I, to me, I wasn't identified by boxing. I knew I could live away from boxing, but I needed to find that something that worked for me, that gave me that itch. And I, still, I used to ride, I'd, I'd hunt, I'd, I'd do everything, just to give me that rush. Yeah. Uh, then once I've, I'd sort of settled and, and got into my head, you're not a boxer anymore. That's not what you do for a living. Then it, it's an adaptable skill. The things you learn through boxing, in and out of the ring, you've got to adapt it to, to everyday life. Mm -hmm. The experience I've had, the, the experience I've been through, that wisdom that you've gained from other experiences, you pass it on. Like Brendan did with me, mm -hmm. I do with others. So I talk about... Brendan used to say this, it's a thin line between success and failure. And when you, you haven't succeeded, when you're trying to succeed, you think it's a never-ending mountain to climb. You think, how am I going to do this? But when you succeed, you think, is that it? But you can never put it into words what it is and how it's done. But I could show you, but I couldn't tell you. So when you do it, you think, I remember when I became world champion, I thought, was that it? Was that it? And I knew I'd never, ever lose as world champion again because I understood what it was. It wasn't luck. You know, I understood. I'd, I'd been through all the knots, all the successes, all the failures. So I understood that is an adaptable skill. You can adapt that to family. You can adapt it to work. You can adapt it to relationships. You can adapt it to everything. I can't explain to you how it is. I can show you. And, and, and so when I try and get it down, I basically say, if you want it enough, you will get it. But think, be careful what you wish for. Mm. Be careful. If you want to be famous, if you work hard enough, you'll get it. 
But then that what what comes with that fame? What what is fame? What is fame to you and your ideas? Fame is everybody knows me, everybody sees me, everybody sees what you're doing. But that means on a good day and a bad day. That means if you're walking down the street having a bit of a a rough day or someone's giving you crap or you're dressed shit. Everybody, that's fame. Everybody's going to see, oh my God, look at him. So all of a sudden, everybody's talking about you. Everybody's talking the good or bad about you. So you're thinking, stop, get out of my business. But you ask for that. So you've got to be careful what you wish for. You've got to be careful what you want. So if you want it enough, be careful how you ask for it and how you understand what you actually want. And that's the only way I can actually explain it because I should never have become a world champion. I should never have achieved the things I did and get to the level of what I got to. Because I was probably, I've got a picture of myself, uh, Harold Graham, Slugrow Tool, uh, and Brendan. Black and white picture. I love the picture. And, and we're all stood in the picture. And you look at that picture, out of everybody there, the one who was least expected to succeed was me. Hmm. But in reality, the only one that succeeded to become world champion was me. But I was the least talented out of all three of us. And so, so the, the, what I had and what they didn't have was I had persistence, hunger. I listened. I wanted to learn. And my ego was in check. So I was willing to listen. I was willing to, to go through the good as well as the bad to get to success. They had all the talent in the world. I didn't have nearly as much talent as those guys. But Brendan always said, it, it's like having a cake. You can have all the ingredients. You're missing one piece. It just don't taste mm. right. I had the right ingredients to get to where they were. They didn't have the right ingredients to get to where I ended up. What happens in the boxing world, it's an adaptable skill. So now what I do, I, I, I do a lot of talks in prisons. I'm actually just reenacting what Brendan Libre does, took us to prisons. Uh, he talked to prisoners. We do a boxing exhibition. He say to the prisoners, he get the prisoners to talk about their lives and talk about how they ended up there and, and talk about the, the, the difference boxing made to him and everybody else uh, around, the, around Winkerbank. I, I do a lot of media stuff. I loved it. Talking about boxing is not a job. Talking about boxing is like the best gig in the world. Like, oh my God, someone's going to tap me on the shoulder and it's saying, mm. Nanny, get off. You're talking about something you love. So in a way, I'd say I'd not worked a day in my life. <laughs> and so, and that's what it is. And, and I, I live in today. I'm not worried about tomorrow because we spend so much time worrying about tomorrow. We miss today. So yesterday, we, we, we were worried about today. We get today. And we're worrying about tomorrow instead of living in the moment and thinking, I'm here. I appreciate this. And that, again, it's an adaptable skill in every form. And so boxing teaches you so much about yourself because it's a very lonely sport. It's a frightening sport because when you're in the dressing room or when you're when you train really hard and you've sparred and you've got hit and you've got hurt, you, you then think, how much do I want this? Mm. I spent six, seven years on the road in Germany, in East Germany and in France as a sparring partner. I hated it. It was so lonely. And it made me decide whether or not I wanted it or not. And, and, and there's a lot of soul searching in boxing. Yeah. It can be the loneliest place in the world. Well, it's so interesting you're talking about, you know, when you're talking about your early gym colleagues, so to speak, you were the least likely to succeed, let alone least likely to become the world champion. Yeah. But there seems to be a consistency around the people that I speak with. And that's people who have gone on to have amazing success and there's some sort of either chip on the shoulder or some sort of pain or something, you know, you're yeah. alluding to the soul searching there. Yeah. So I know that from a young age, your, your parents split up from yeah. a young age so you, and your dad wasn't present. Yeah. How, how much do you think that played a part in your 
what caused your hunger and what led to you having the success that you did have? So it's not until I've gotten older, I actually think about your path in life to say the first seven years of your life can be very impressionable upon you all, upon who you are. And my dad, my memory and my earliest memory of my dad, who I didn't actually meet until I was 30, was him pulling up in the street in a, in a beige Cortina. Look, you know, a beige mm-hmm. Cortina. And uh, that's a car, by the way. And he got out of the car and he was trying to drag me into the car. He had my hand and my mum came out of the house and grabbed my other hand. So they were pulling him in left, right and centre. And she was arguing and shouting at him. And then she got a broom or something. She was hitting him and got me in the house. That was my memory of my dad until I met him again when I was 30 years old. And it was always that I'd always craved for that security. Mm. I'd always craved for that to belong somewhere, to belong. I, I was a homeboy. Brendan always said, Johnny, you're a mummy's boy. I never wanted to leave home. I never wanted, I was happy to stay at home. You know, I was happy to just be mummy's boy out of all of us. I was the biggest crybaby out of all of our family. And so for me to box, my brothers and sister, they still laugh now. You ended up a boxer. I was like, I was the biggest crybaby going. And so for me to fall in that sport, the only reason why I, I ended up boxing was to make friends at the boxing gym. But the downside of making friends at the boxing gym was you had to box. Mm-hmm. So I went, I went there to the gym with the lads and we trained and everything because the school I went to was a nice school on my side of town. They, they took kids out of certain deprived areas of Sheffield. I was fortunate one of them to go to this nice posh Catholic school run by nuns, posh side of town. So when I was at school, most of my friends were like, they'd go back to you know, work for their parents or whatever. And, you know, they'd go to college, university. I wasn't a clever kid at school. And so by the time I'd left school, they actually walked me out of school. I didn't stay for exams. I didn't do my school exams. I was rubbish. So when I left school, I'm thinking, I've got no friends. Because my mum wouldn't let us play out on the street with the kids on, the, on our doorstep because, because she didn't want us to get in trouble. So we kind of sneaked out now and again. So I knew the kids from my area, but we weren't tight. We weren't friends. So I knew, I understood that I need to make friends here because I ain't got no friends. And that's why I went to the boxing club because my brother went and one of my elder brothers, he was like my hero. He was mm. Mr. Cool. So I made my friends at the gym. I didn't want to box. I didn't want to fight. I didn't dream and think I want to be Muhammad Ali. I just went to, to, to make friends at the gym. The downside was having to fight. And so and this is how I say some people fall on their path in life. You know, when I spar, I'd hold on for, for dear life. I'd run, I'd be like trying to get out of the way. And they'd mock me and say, they'd say to my face, you're, you're shit, you. you, you're rubbish. And I'm like, I don't give a shit. Because <laughs> I was just with my mates having banter. We'd all train together and everything. And um, slowly but surely, my mates would drop off. They'd leave the gym, but I'd make another friend at the gym. So that was my life. That was my family. And fortunately, Brendan Ingle was a very clever guy where he could get the best out of you no matter what. And he saw in me that he could do something with me. Not, not as to be a world champion, but to do something. There was more to mm. me than what you could see. I was like the kind of kid where an adult spoke to me. I'd like, I'd be teary and want to cry. I didn't want to speak to adults. I didn't want that face-to-face confrontation. Mm. I couldn't sport, speak publicly. I, I just struggled. And Brendan spent time on me like he spent time on everybody in the gym. And his successes are not the fighters you see. There's something out where it shows him out of fighters and success and champions we had in the gym. It's unbelievable. His successes, his success stories are what happened outside the gym. The amount of people he helped 
from the area, from the community, for uh, boys to become men, to become fathers, girls to become women, to become mothers, to be successful in a career, to go to college, to go to university, is massive. People have no idea. So when you see, you talk about Brendan Ingle and the success he's had with fighters, that's the tip of the iceberg. So he knew he could do something with me, be it boxing or whatever, or to further me, to open my mind and broaden my horizons. But he knew it was a long job. And he said to me, you're, you're, a, mother, you're, you're a mother's boy and you're not going to grow up until you leave home. I'm like, I'm not a mother's boy. Yeah. Went home and told my mum. <laughs> um, and uh, and it, when I did do that, that's when I started to grow up. So it was the... It was that search for security. It's interesting, actually, I'll just start to make the, the links when you're saying yeah. I didn't like conflict, particularly with adults. Yeah. That the imprint, potentially, of that moment with your mum and dad, that kind of yeah. pull back and forth was such a yeah. high conflict moment that it might have left a mark where you then just want to avoid situations like that. You don't want to feel the pain of that situation yeah. again. Yeah. But maybe maybe Brendan Ingle, and just for context, as you mentioned him a few times, was your coach who My you coach. credit yeah. a huge amount of your success yeah. and happiness and life to yeah. now. Maybe he filled a little bit of that absent father void, which yeah. pulled you back into the gym. I actually used to wish when I, when so Brendan's house was across the road from the gym, and he, his sons uh, and daughters Dominic, John, Brendan Junior, uh, Bridget, Tara. When I used to see him walking home, I, no disrespect to my stepdad Benji, great guy, uh, my mom. I used to think I wish I was one of his kids. Mm. They go into his house. You know, Brendan always spoke to you, gave you, told you stories, spoke to you about history, religion, boxing, philosophy. You just could walk. How many, do you think, and people watching this, how many people just go and walk and talk with somebody? They don't do it anymore. We're like this in our phone. Yeah. They don't do it. You're in the house, the bigger your house, the less you see your family because everybody's in their, their different areas. You know, we don't do it anymore. Brendan spent time with you to educate you. He taught you not to remember, but how to think. Schools teach you to remember. Yeah. Brendan taught you how to think. Use your brain, he'd say. Use your brain, come on. And he'd always be talking to you. And I, I used to envy his kids walking to his house. And to me, I just think, I know that, as I said, I met my dad when I was 30. When I met him, my ex, my ex wife, she, at the t my wife at the time, she, she her family knew him. Mm. I didn't even know what he looked like, knew him, because he used to be bragging about his son being a boxer. And then they put it to him like, That's, we know his dad. And he lived in Black, he lives in Blackburn. And, um, and so she invited him around to the house one summer. Your wife at the time? My did. wife invited you know, to put us together. Did and you want to do it? I didn't know. Uh, I was curious. And uh, I can remember knocked on the door, I opened the door, and I looked at him, and I, and I knew straight away who he was. But he had blue eyes. I'm like, what the f black guy with blue eyes, huh? Mm. So, so I'm like looking at him thinking, I said, you're my dad, aren't you? And he went, how you doing, son? Did you just know straight away? I, I knew straight away. Yeah. And I shook his hand. But when he called me son, I thought, <laughs> you mm. can't call me son. My stepdad is my dad. Yeah. You know, I'm like, shook his hand. And he said, do you remember me? And I told him about that, that time outside the house. And he said, how do you remember that? You're only three. And uh, I said, I just remember it. He said, you know what happened then? I said, I kind of put the pieces together. What happened was my dad, he, he had a family elsewhere. My mum thought he used to work away, but he had a family. And when my mum found out, she blew him out of the water. But my auntie, uh, she was still in touch with him. And my mum knew this. So just to wind him up, she said, oh, I'm going to give Johnny away for adoption. 
she wasn't just to tell him, just to wind him up, because my mum wanted to give him a mouthful. So he came to try and get me, to take me to live with him. And so my mum saw me, I've got you, to pull me back in the house. And like, that's, that was that, that confrontation. Mm. But I remember that. And it just stood out to me no matter what. And so when I was 16, 17, when my mum and my stepdad split up, and like my brothers had moved to London, so it was me, my mum and my sister uh, left here in Sheffield. Everybody had moved to London. So that big family that were all crammed into a little house, all of a sudden everybody's growing up, disappearing. And I thought, I'm going to create my own family. I want my own family here. You know, my, my, no matter what. And, and I know what I want my kids to, to see as kids. I know what I want to create as a, as a father. Uh, I know what, what environment I want to create. Like this environment, family's family. And that's what I've said. We've had our, we have our families, family's family, no matter what. Uh, and that's what to, to, to Debbie, you marry me, you know, we're, we're family for life. No matter where you are, what you're doing, we're family. And as long as you understand that. So I created my own unit because to me, my strength, which I found out was if I, my, my foundations are stable, I can achieve anything. Mm. Once my foundations have become rocky, that's when I become rocky. It affects everything I'm doing. Uh, nothing's, nothing's concrete. Nothing succeeds. So, so I create a, a solid foundation. Your solid foundation is family. Uh, and, and once you, we all come from somebody. So once you create that solid foundation, that worked for me, you can achieve anything. But you need that solid foundation to think to yourself, no matter what, I've got my family. I can always come home. And even now, like my mum, she lives in London. She's 94 February. Wow. And the best sleep I get is when I go to my mum's house mm. and I get in that single bed <laughs> in her bedroom. The best sleep I get, the most it's the time I feel most at home. So I suppose if a psychologist looked at it, you'd think, Jesus, I know where mm. this is. <laughs> but yeah, it's just, it was creating that, that, that solid foundation. And I know once I'd done that, that was the secret to my success to, to grow, to get further. I think that's so great for people listening who might not have had a balanced childhood as well, mm. because so many of us, fear those things about ourselves or try and hide them or ashamed of them mm. but i really think there's a pattern that's emerged where those are the things that make you they're, they're the unique stories and the things and actually when you really start to dive into it and then talk about it you realize it's actually not that unique you're mm -hmm. not the only one you're not the only person yeah. in the world who's going through that there's many lessons you learn and many lessons but you've got to learn those lessons and it's the saying i always say you know you've got to go through experiences good and bad mm. to get wisdom so when good things happen to you, great. When bad things happen to you, you think, shit, why me? But to get wisdom, which means you know now you know how the, how the end can be, and yeah, now you can fix it, you've got to go through those things. So now when good and bad things happen, the bad things aren't great, but you can learn from, you look and think, right, that shit won't happen again. Mm -hmm. Right, I learned from that. You know, that's how I stopped being a loser as a fighter to being a winner. Mm. I thought, right, I'll fix it the next time. Ignore the, the naysayers, Nelson, you're crappy. This time. Learn the next time and get better. So I embrace the good as well as the bad. Um, and, and that's what most people should do. My, the, 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 the eureka moment for me was I understood the difference between nerves and fear, but I didn't understand it until I got to my late 20s. I used to look at other people like Prince Asim Hamid, Ryan Rose, the youngsters coming through and doing amazing in the teens. And I'm thinking, I'm older than you. Why? What is going on? Because I was scared going into the ring. What I thought I was scared. And I'm thinking, what is the difference between me and them? How come they can do it? I've got the same training. We're doing the same thing. And it transpired that the fact that what it was, was I was nervous. 
So when I was nervous and you're sweating and you're panicking, your heart's mm. going and everything, you know, I thought that was fear. So I mistook nerves for fear. So for fear, all of a sudden I'm thinking, I don't want to be, a, it's like fight or flight. So I, d I didn't support those nerves until it kept happening and kept happening and kept happening. And then eventually, I think I was in a dressing room once. I, I can't remember where I was. Uh, no, no, I was out in Germany, actually, sparring with Fabrice Thiels, a world champion. And I was beating him up in sparring. And I thought, why am I beating this guy up? He's world champion and I'm not. What is the difference between me and him? And you've got to have this conversation with yourself. You've got to check it out yourself. And it was that he could perform in public. So then you break it down. Why can he perform in public and you can't? Again, because I get scared. Oh, what are you scared of happening? What's the worst thing that can happen? You can get hit, yeah. You can get killed, yeah. But don't do it, do something else. So I'm having this argument, this conversation, this breakdown with myself until it got to a point where I thought, they must think the same thing. But then I remembered something as my first sparring job, Alex Blanchard told me. And he said, he said, nerves are good. And I thought, I'm not scared because I keep coming back. Every fight I get in the ring and I've got this feeling and I think I'm scared. I thought, I ain't scared. I'm nervous. So nerves are good because nerves put you on point. Nerves like, you're like a deer in the woods. You're on alert. That's what the, the beat of the heart is, the pump of the blood is. That's nerves. So then I understood, I thought, you're not scared, you dickhead. You're nervous. So I thought, all right, now I've got it. So once you run with fear, run with it, not from it, once you control it and understand what it is, those nerves will make you perform to the best of your ability, the speed you create, the moves, the, the cameos are brilliant because you're using that fear, those ner that nerves, to, to be spontaneous, to be sharp and be smart. But you've got to understand what it is. And once I said that, I said it so in public. Do you know the amount of messages I got from fight fighters or people saying, oh my God, that's me. I've got it. You're right. You're spot on right. And so we, we mistake nerves for fear. Once you understand what nerves is and nerves are good, then you will run with fear. You'll run with it because you think, come on, bring it on. You want to be nervous. You want that. It's when you stop being nervous, you want to worry because then you become complacent and then you're going to end up getting beaten by somebody that shouldn't beat you because you're not on point. You're not thinking like an instinctively. You're not using your everything you've got. And so and these are lessons you have to learn through years of experiences of, of going through things left, right and centre. And that's, to me, is why I say boxing is a, a transferable skill. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's huge. The, that comparison or, the, or the, the definition of nerves versus fear is, mm. is massive. Like whether you're delivering a talk in, at work and standing up in front of people or stepping mm. into the ring to fight for the world championship. And yeah, if you can do it, you can do it. And so you, you've got to understand, I can actually do this. So... Get it, have a word with but you yourself. But you've got to do it to get over it. Yeah. yeah Push yourself exactly, into it. Yeah. Exactly. I look at my first world title attempt. I was 22. Box here in Sheffield. I drew for the WBC title. On paper, it's a great feat for a guy of my experience up to that point. to do With little experience to do that. And I look at that fighter on TV and I want to put my hand in the screen and slap him in the face because I know he's, he's misunderstanding that feeling, that gut feeling. I think, come on, Johnny, wake up. And my life could have been so different. But then you think everything happens for a reason. So I had to go through all those experiences in life to get to the point where I understood 
what was going on. That, that is huge, I think. And I've had a lot of that recently because I'm, I'm just turned 34 and it's during this period where you start to realize a lot about yourself yeah. and a lot about the old version of yourself. Mm. It's difficult to have compassion with what you then might perceive as the weaker version of you or the mm. person who didn't quite get it in that moment. And you kind of, sometimes I get sad cause I'm like, fuck's sake, I, I yeah. could have done something differently or, you know, so it's, it's hard to try and have compassion for yourself. It is, and that's what I'm saying. And that's why at the time when people were telling me stuff at the time, I didn't get it because I was all so consumed by what I thought was the reality. And, and some people instinctively know who they are. They get that side of themselves. I didn't, I was a late developer in everything. So then once the penny had dropped, once I know something, it doesn't matter. How, a million people could tell me I'm wrong. I will stick to my guns be, because the amount of people told me to jack in, I was rubbish, I was no good. And then I became world champion, setting a record of defences that haven't been, hasn't been broken to this day. The, all them people are like, oh, well done, you're brilliant, you're done. I'm thinking, you people were telling me I was shit. But I don't even actually remind them of that because that, them doing that made me stronger, thinking, you've taught me such a lesson. So if I know, I can see a path to where I want to achieve and where I want to go and how it can be done. It doesn't matter how many people tell me you can't do this. I can do anything. I, I know I can. And so, and if you believe that, it doesn't matter if it's true or not because you believe it. Mm, amazing, Johnny. Because what you're doing, rather than having those negative feelings and that low frequency vibration, mm. you're coming with gratitude. Like, thank you. You yeah. made me who I was by saying I was shit or by not believing yeah. in me or whatever. That's right. You could, you could easily say... I told you so, yeah. uh, but you don't because I just think... Point. What's the point? Yeah, what is the point? Yeah. You know, I've learned such a lesson and, and that is, again, transferable skill, it's life. Mm. So, so from the, that wall to that wall, you know, that's life and you want to get to that wall to success. And on your way here, you're going to get distracted by family, friends, job, death, success, wealth, poor, but and all these things are, are set to take you off course to get to there. And I'm not saying ignore all these things, deal with them but don't take your eye off mm. your focus. So you deal with it, yep, deal with it, boom. Deal with it, but, and, and what happens in life, most of us, we're going through life and then we, we, we get taken off that path and then you forget about your, your, that, that desire. Might, you might get married, you might have kids. Then you think, no, nah, no, nah, I can't do that now because mm. I've got this. Mm. We can all do it, but it all depends on how much you want it, how much you want that success. Yeah, great analogy, I love that. You can tell a lot about a man by his bookshelf. Right, when, I was, oh. when I was setting up, <laughs> when I was setting up, I was having a little look. So two copies of the Daily Stoic. Yeah. You've got um, the monk who sold his Ferrari, Robin yeah. Sharma, one of the greats. Well, I have to remind myself. You've got, uh, oh, uh, Think Like a Monk, Jay Shea. That's another yeah. good one. Yeah. You've got the Tyson Fury book as well. Uh -huh. I'm drawing a lot of comparisons. I read that a while ago with his trainer, Gus D'Amato, who transformed to the way that he, he thought, wrongly or rightly. You know, you Mike Tyson. Yes. Tyson, yeah. What Tyson, did I say? Yeah. But you said Tyson Fury. Tyson Fury, sorry. <laughs> yeah. Mike, Mike Tyson, because the book's called Tyson. Yeah. Yeah. And his influence on him, right? Everything from auto-suggestion and like the old techniques that he used in order to make him the youngest yeah. heavyweight world title champion ever. Mm. You had a similar story and a similar influence from, from Brendan. What's, if you distilled it, what would be the biggest lesson that he gave you? Because you've, you've mentioned a few already, but what's the, what's the main thing that he left you with? Believe in yourself. He taught us to think. And as he was teaching us to think, we, 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 we didn't appreciate the moment. He was teaching us to think. Once you believed in yourself, in yourself, it does not matter what anybody else says. 
And he keep and, and even when I'd retired, he said, Johnny, look where you started. You had 13 amateur fights. You won three. People didn't tell you you were rubbish to your face behind your back. They told you to your face. You went on to turn professional. You lost your first three on the trot. People were saying, why are you wasting your time? You're rubbish, you're garbage. Look at where you've ended up. You saw a world title, a world record of defense as a, as a world champion, what nobody thought you could ever achieve. You didn't just win the world title, you kept it to defend it so many times. That is the strongest thing ever. Many are so easily swayed by the negatives coming from left, right, center. What happens is we're letting those people impression, you know, make an impression on you. So the example would be, I think to myself, if, you, if you're a fighter or if you're a sportsman, uh, man or woman, and you're on social media, and a lot of them say, I've come off social media because it does my head in. Yeah. The biggest idiot is you, is me, the sportsman. Because if I'm the one getting up at stupid o'clock in the morning to train, to diet, to kill myself, to be shattered, and, and, and then I'm going to read something from some armchair champion, oh, he's not very good. And I'm going to believe him when I'm the one that's putting the work in, more fool me. Mm. So, so just because you're getting negativity spread upon you and people saying you can't do it, doesn't mean you can't do it. How about this one? Maybe just they just don't know as much as you do. You know, so it's about being mentally strong. So all those books are about that. Yeah. We spend so much time in the gym getting big muscles, getting looking spark, doing a certain time on the track. But how many people train that? Mm. So training that, you don't have to be a, 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 a wordsmith. You don't have to be, you, what you need to do is you need to, to train your mind, to learn how to discipline your mind, to learn how to, to, to work. When I'd run, I didn't run with earphones in like most people do. You have earphones in so you can, the run becomes easier mm -hmm. because you don't want to think about being tired. So how are you training your mind? Take the earphones out have your head, have your mind listen to your body, the ache in the knee, the pump of the breath. You're like, oh my God, I'm knackered. You need to have that argument with yourself to educate your mind to deal with the boredom, to deal with that, that, that doubt. So you're training your mind, you're making your mind strong. And so therefore, when it comes to performing and there's times where your mind would drift off, you have disciplined your mind and trained your mind to think, I'm on this, mm. you ain't getting me. And it happened so much, in, especially in my sport, between round six and round nine, and when fighters that are winning lose because your mind switches off because you can get a little bit bored. Mm -hmm. you, you'll drift a little bit. You, you've got to stay focused. And so to me, this, training this is more as, as important as training this. So I can take anybody to the gym, say, do that, do this, do that. We've got to discipline our, our own man. We've got to do it for ourselves. So you've got to find little tricks that work for yourself. I fast once a week on a Monday. Mm. All day? No, uh, all, from, from Sunday night mm. until Tuesday morning. Mm. Every uh, week? Uh, every week. So I don't eat anything. I'll drink, but I don't eat anything. Just what? water or? Water. Coffee. I'll have a vitamin to drink. I put a little yeah. uh, uh, multivitamin in it. Not because... For religious reasons, not any, but I do it to just give myself that stability, that discipline, that one thing I've got to do for me. And and doing that, and at times, and I find it harder. Uh, say a Sunday night, it's all right because I've eaten Sunday daytime. I can go to bed. I get up some Monday morning. Gets about ten o'clock. If I've not occupied myself, you start thinking, "Shit, I want something to eat." Mm. If I get to three o'clock, I'm not done bad, you know. Then and then I think, right, just three, get through the night. And then you're done. You've done it. 
you know, and it's hard, but you, you, you're disciplined in your mind because now you're physically feeling it and mentally you're, you're having an argument with yourself, stuff it, I'll just have that, I'll just have this. And to me, it's my, that's my little thing that I do every Monday. I, I stopped eating pork when I was 13 years old. I love bacon. I still love the smell of it. I look at it and think, oh my God, I bet that is. <laughs> but I wanted to give myself one thing that as a young man that I knew I, I had discipline that I could control. And once I'd done that, I knew if I decided on anything I thought I'm not going to do it, I knew I could do it. I know I could, if I was smoking, I could stop smoking because I knew I could do it. I knew I did discipline for it. If you don't discipline yourself in some little thing, then, then you'll never know. You'll, never, you'll find it very hard to discipline yourself in anything. So, and even when you don't have to do it, if you understand what I'm saying. So basically, say if you're, I don't know, you're a, you're a drinker or, or a smoker or you like bacon or you like, you love a, a cream pie or whatever, try and take it out of your life one day a week one day a week, or try and stop smoking one day a week. And if you do it just one day a week, then the other six days when you're smoking, you'll think it'll make you stronger for that one day. And then you think, you know what? I'm going to try it on a Monday. I'm going to try it on a Friday. So that's two days of stop smoking. So you've got five days where you're smoking and you think, but what you've done is you're, you're, you're teaching yourself to mentally be strong mm -hmm. and disciplined so you can achieve anything. It's a transferable skill. And that's why, because, because if, you, if you go on a diet, you think, I can't, I can't do this diet. You know you can do it because you are, you're teaching your mind to say, no, no, I ain't doing that. You know, you've got to trick your mind, do things that work for it. Yeah, that's superb. I love that, Johnny. I have cold showers every morning for a similar, similar reason. I have that internal negotiation or battle with myself and every morning it's like, no, nope. yeah. I'm turning it all the way to cold. And yeah. it, you know, I think I'd love to give that a go. It's a little something. So the digestive system, it takes 15 hours to clear up the digestive mm -hmm. system completely. So the average American has got about a stone of food in it at one time. So 15 hours, just 15 hours. So to me, I thought, right, Sunday, have a nice Sunday dinner from uh, uh, Sunday night, uh, eight o'clock, I ain't having nothing else to eat. I sleep Sunday night, get up Monday morning. Monday morning, right, that's, this is the hard bit. You go through the day. That's when that battle starts. You think, God, I'm hungry. Drink, do whatever. I still train on that day. Mm -hmm. I still drink, replay. I'll know, I won't change any of my, anything I'm doing. Uh, and then that night time I'll go to bed and I'll be thinking, right, tomorrow I'm going to have this, I'm going to have that, this. <laughs> so whatever time I stopped on the Sunday is the time I start on the Tuesday. So if I stopped at six o'clock on the Sunday, I can eat from six o'clock Tuesday morning. If I stopped at eight o'clock, I can eat from eight o'clock Tuesday morning. And you know the feeling, you think, yes, I don't need anybody else to tap me on the shoulder. I'm tapping myself, mm -hmm, well done. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just a little battle, a little, a little exercise that you can give yourself. Yeah. And this is why I'm talking about smokers and drinkers. Take it out of your life for one day. Yeah. Just one day. So you've not stopped smoking. So maybe it's, maybe it's easy to do think, you know what, today I'm not smoking. Just today I'm not smoking. And then when you get used to that day of, of, of not doing it, then you think, right, I'm going to try two days. Mm -hmm. Then do it that way. Uh, how I got that was when it, I ate a diet to make the weight I'd give myself a pig day one pig day a week so I love Mr. Kipling's cherry bakewells same um, yeah. <laughs> and so and I love Walker's crisps I could kill a 24 pack easy so so when I had my fights and I had to diet I'd to stick to the diet I'd buy it and every time I'd see it in the shop or whatever I'd buy it and put it in a cupboard and the thing like, Saturday, you're mine. 
<laughs> sat and I'd buy it and I'd put, the, put them in the cake. I'm looking forward to Saturday. And then Saturday came. I could never finish it all, but I, I could eat it. I knew I could do it, but it helped me stick to and be disciplined with mm. my diet all week until Saturday. So you're not wasting that diet. What you're doing is you're disciplining your mind to be strong. And then all of a sudden you think, you know, I don't need it, but you're tricking your mind to think, we'll have that Saturday. Mm. You're never going to finish all the Mr. Kiplings and all the Chris you put in that cupboard. You probably eat a few of them and think, oh God, I've got a food coma. But you've disciplined yourself to stick to the chunk of it. Yeah. Then eventually, it's just about training that. Yeah. And that's why all these books are about making your mind strong. Yeah. Well, the secret to building confidence is keeping promises to yourself. Yeah. So as soon as you set yourself that target and you stick to it, that's yeah. when you start to build self-confidence, self-worth. And, and, and if you break that promise then you know it's kind of self-love and thinking, yeah. I can't do this. And it affects everything. Yeah, see, I, I knew I was a fucking, yeah. you know, whatever. And, you know, when we're tired and bad things happen, which inevitably do, it's very easy to fall back into that, oh, I'll have a bake well just to make myself feel better. Yeah, and that's it. So it's, yeah. it's just creating little things for yourself. Mm. We are our biggest hero. We are our biggest enemy. Yeah. And, yeah. and it doesn't matter what anybody says. The norm is what you create, is what you make mm. it. Speaking to you now, though, is so inspiring and... I'm in my element is listening to you, to you go through it. But you spoke about earlier how, you know, you were the, you were the first person to cry or get upset and get controlled by his emotions. Mm. So what was the journey for you to get into that kind of strong-willed, strong-minded individual that you are today? Like, when did that start to shift? Now I put things into compartment. I still cry, but now I don't think... I can remember when Brendan passed away, I couldn't talk about him without blubbering and so and I, I'm like so angry at myself because I was angry at myself because it wasn't that I was ashamed of crying it was, it was, it was that I was frustrated because I couldn't get out what I was trying to say about how much of a good man he was so as time had gone by I'm thinking have a word with yourself Johnny come on you know I don't feel as ashamed of crying I probably did at first but I thought you know we all cry yeah and no matter if anybody sees it or not uh and there's, for, a, there's, there's a difference between crying because you're feeling an emotion you're allowing yourself yeah. to feel it versus getting overwhelmed and controlled by the emotion like you know when you yeah. said like your bottom lip would go yeah. and it's just like oh because when they're talking about it they 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 put themselves back in that moment mm. that moment of emotion yeah so that's why they get like i do it and so what i do now is i put things into compartment and these things are something you've got to do every day now what started that was when i bought for the world title in sheffield and it was a proper rude awakening. I was a mummy's boy, 22 years old. I thought everybody was my mate. You know, everybody's ringing my phone and Johnny, it's that and the other. Then when I, I drew and it was a terrible fight, I saw how bad human nature could be. People were slagging me down, calling me a tosser to my face. You know, they were, they were proper disrespectful to me everywhere. And I'm like, I just can't get it. I just think, how can people be so wicked? You know, then I appreciated when you see a newspaper many people reading that and you see a little cartoon about somebody in a newspaper it's all right to laugh at but then eventually whoever that person it, that's about somebody yeah. so what about that person you're laughing at and so that's someone's mother someone's father someone's brother someone's son that's dead, still a person so so then eventually when I saw that side of it there's nothing you can do about it because if you hit one person and giving you shit you've got to hit everybody otherwise mm. you're a bully yeah so you've got to clock it you think you've got to hold it down bite your lip and think how do I deal with this do I run away and hide? Or light my lip and think, oh, all right, no problem. Yeah. I've got to, the only person that can fix it is you. So you can cry and blubber there and then. The issue's still there when you finish crying and blubbering. So, so if this is still there, what are you going to do about it? As far as I was concerned was, I will fix this and I'm not going to take it personal, especially from someone I don't know personally. 
Everybody has an opinion. You could say this is gray. I could say it's black. You know, it's just a difference of opinion. That's how we look at life differently. Yeah. It's understanding human nature. Never be surprised by mm. it. And so, so to me, that was a, my lesson that started to learn of disciplining, putting things into a compartment. Yeah. And now and again, it spills over. I think that, that when it spilled over the most was when Brendan died. And I thought, oh, shit, you've started again. You know, and so, and that probably started a, a waterfall of, of things. And I don't mind saying that. It doesn't make me any less of a man. Mm. I just think I had to understand what was going on. Yeah. And, and, and that's why and when I'm thinking about disciplining myself in understanding the difference between nerves and fear, when I've disciplined myself in many things, it's putting all those things into practice and controlling that emotion when it can be controlled. But now and again, you've got to let it go. Yeah. You've got to be smart enough. It's funny how much we defend our own opinions though, yeah. isn't it? Like, so, you know, you're saying that everyone's allowed their own opinion. Of course they are. But because we're constantly searching for who we are or what our identity yeah. is, we believe that we are our opinions. We are what we believe yeah. at the time, but those things change over time for us anyway. I thought I was the best fighter in the world when I was world champion. I believed I was the best fighter in the world. Doesn't mean I was. My truth was, as far as I was concerned, I was the best fighter in the world. That's what I live by. I'm quite sure there was somebody at my weight, somewhere in the world that could have beat me. I just never met him. Yeah. But in my, as far as I was concerned, I was the best professional fighter in the world when I was world champion. And no one was ever gonna beat me. I say it now with conviction. That's what I really believed in. It doesn't matter if I'm wrong or right, but mm -hmm. that's what I believe in. So wait, you could argue with me, say, now you'd beat me. I said, I don't give a shit, no one. <laughs> I believe it. So it's, it's what your truth is, it's what you live by, it's what you look at. So when people have said to me, would you have beaten such and such, such and such? I'll tell you, yes or no. You know, and, and cause that's what I believe. That's my opinion. So why would I, I go with your opinion when you don't know me, you don't yeah. know what makes me, you don't want yeah. to know what makes me tick. You know, so, and this is, this again, a transferable skill, it's in anything. If you think, and you can see how, what you can achieve, and what you can do, it doesn't matter what anybody says, if you really believe it, and you really think you can do it, that's enough. And that's, that, that, it's lonely, because not everybody will believe in you. I'm the only person that believed I was world champion, was the best in the world just before I became world champion, was Brendan. Mm. And I said to Brendan, when I, when I was boxing for the world title uh, against Carl Thompson, I said, Brendan, I don't understand it. I can't see how this guy's going to beat me. And we were driving in the car up at Newman Road. And he said, and he said, am I missing something? He said, Johnny, it's not what they think. It's what you think. As long as you know, it doesn't matter what they think. Just do you. I'm like... You're all right. <laughs> so even guys and mates that I knew and people and I knew read a newspaper, Nelson's gonna get turned over. I didn't take it personal. I thought you just don't know me. Yeah. And but and again, it's something that is adaptable to every part of of our social life, our life, our relationships, and everything. Mm. Yeah. Did you ever get a chance to tell him what you thought of him, Brendan? Yeah. Oh God, he knew. Oh, he knew. I would never have been the person I am today uh, if it wasn't Brendan. I would never have achieved the things I achieved if it wasn't for Brendan. You know, I hold him on a pedestal. And mm. when you come across a good man, he was a good man. And I know many people. Brendan was a good man. And, and he did a lot of selfless acts. And you wouldn't know about it. I knew he did things for me that, that, that he, he, I couldn't tell people I'll tell you now, he's passed away. So, I'm, I'm, But I can remember, I, I was before I boxed for the world title, uh, I didn't have a fight for, I think it was 13 or 18 months. 
And I was struggling financially. I didn't work. I just boxed. And Brendan said, come to the house. Went to his house. Mm. He gave me £250 a week. Every week for 13 months. He said, I'm going to keep you. I want you to hear you are. I'm going to give you this. If you tell anybody I'm giving you this, it stops. And I want the money back. I'm like, <laughs> with the catch. I went, all right. So every Friday, go there, 250 quid. And I'm thinking, this guy didn't have to do this. You know, he's helping me out. He's helping my family out. He didn't have to do this. And I'm like, I'm trying to figure out where's the angle. Why are you doing this? And the, the deal was, so he didn't do it for a tap on the back because I wasn't allowed to tell anybody. So I thought, why are you doing this? He knew I was struggling. He knew, he knew what my, my end goal was. He knew what, what I, I had the discipline to do what I had to do. He didn't have to do it. Just that. that among many things, but that's the one that, to me, I think, you're a good man. Because there's no angle for you at all. Boom. Every month. Every week. And he said, but if you tell anybody, it stops. And I want it back. Hmm. That was it. And I thought you know what, it's not very often you come across somebody that do selfless acts. Mm. And I was walking through King's Cross the other day. And when if I see a beggar or somebody that's not got, I, I try, and it's hard because people say don't give them money because they might, yeah. be, for, might be for drugs. Mm. Not everybody's on drugs. But I'll give, if I've got a coffee, I'll give them the coffee. Yeah. If I've got something to eat, I'll give them something to eat. If, I'm, if I've got it there. So I got to King's Cross and this, this young guy came up to me and uh, he put his hand out and he said, uh, I need somewhere to sleep. It's freezing. I need somewhere to sleep. Have you got some money? He said, I, and I obviously, he'd obviously got a few knockbacks. So his, 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 his uh, presentation of that, his delivery of that, quest, uh, that question came a bit aggressive. Mm. And uh, have you got some money? I need somewhere to sleep tonight. And it's the right state. And there was a security guy outside this uh, bar stroke hotel. And he knew me from the boxing. And uh, when the guy came up to me, the screw guy stepped forward and went, whoa, whoa, get back. I went, no, 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 leave him. He's all right, leave him. I said, what's your name? Tommy's name. And I said, come on. So he walked across the road to, King, to, uh, to Burger King. And as he walked in Burger King, he got a security guard in Burger King. <laughs> as he walked in Burger King, the security guard stood up to stop him, went, leave him, he's with me, leave him alone. So I went to the bar, said, what, what do you want? He said, I need some money to sleep. I said, you need some food in your belly. That's what you need. Because I thought, I didn't know that, I thought if, if you want the hotel, that's 50, 60 quid. I didn't understand you could go to some lodge or something and, and pay seven pounds. I didn't know that. So I thought, the money I'm giving you ain't going to pay for some hotel room. So I said, come. So I said, what do you want? He went, I, I want some money for you. I went, right. Biggest burger, biggest drink, boom, boom. And the payment, my train was coming. And, I, and it was warm inside Burger King. And so I said it loud. I said, right, I paid for your food because there were three people behind them. The security guys, guys, guys there want to kick him out. This is why I said it loud, so I didn't, didn't throw him out. I paid for your food. That's your food. These people can not tell you to come out. You sit down here in the warmth and eat it. I said, that's his, to the woman that served me. Point to the security, that's his, leave him alone. That's his. You know, just to give, put some food in his belly. To, to me, that, to me, doing that, I'd expect someone to do that for me if I was in his position. So I can I, how can I expect to do that when I'm not going to do it for somebody else? 
But what, what an advert for Brendan in the first place, passing it on to you, because yeah. it's, it's the pay it forward model, isn't it? Yeah, it's like I, so I did it with my daughter. We were yeah. driving through London, we pulled up at the traffic lights, and we know those guys that clean the window. Um, and this guy looked in the right state, and uh, I made, a, made my daughter, my youngest daughter was driving through, the guy come to clean it, she went, get away! I went, Bailey, stop, stop, leave him. And I said, yo, yo, come around here. And he wants to clean the car. I said, leave him. So I had a load of change in the middle. I, I took it out. And Bailey said, no, dad, no. I said, Bailey, stop. And gave him the change. I said, go and do someone else. You don't have to clean my window. So da Bailey's like, dad, why have you done that? I said, Bailey, you see that man there? He's someone's son. Might be someone's father, brother or sister. That could be me. I said, so, so if that was me and, and you were in your car, and you saw me, would you want someone to do that for me? And she went, well, well, yeah. I said, so what you'd expect for yourself or for your own, you've got to do for others. Yeah, but daddy might have spent it on drugs. I said, he might not have spent it on drugs. I said, but to do that would have been hard enough for him alone to, to come begging for money. I said, so you've got to think about things differently. I was reading the book the other day. Do you know the basketball player, Carmelo Anthony? Yes, yeah, He was yeah, talking yeah, about how the, yeah. that squeegeeing and cleaning the windscreen was such a huge part of his childhood because he went and did it. He'd get his few dollars here and there and it allowed him to go and buy trainers, yeah. which meant him, made him feel like a completely different person and contributed hugely to... Mm. Obviously, he had skills and talent and hard work and everything else, but just that little thing as a kid who's got nothing. Yeah. You know, so it's really important to but support... But passing it on. Yeah. So I'm glad I did that while my daughter did because hopefully she'll do it and she'll do it for her kids. If you can do it and everybody's doing that kind of thing, then it lifts people. Yeah. You know, it's very easy to, to, to be blind and not see things or to ignore people. But people are in that position for a reason. You know, not everybody's on drugs. Not everybody's bad. You know, but some people hit a hard time. Yeah. And so I believe Brendan passed that on to me, how I, how I think about people, how I think about myself, how I think about society. We don't have to conform to what is supposed to be the norm. You know, you do what is right. Mm. You do what you think is right. It doesn't matter if you think everybody else thinks it's wrong or right. You do what you think is right. Then the world will be a better place. The best time I was in London was when the Olympics were on in 2012. Everybody was shaking, saying, hello, yeah. all right. I'm like, shit, in London. <laughs> and it was nice. It was proper nice. I thought, it's nice, this. I thought, what's happened? Yeah. You know, 2012, it's the best time. I can remember when I'm in London, everybody that I spoke to, did like say hello when you're near Olympic Park. They were all, they're really nice. Why aren't people like that most of the time? Mm. You don't have to be nasty. Yeah, I think it's like foundation again, isn't it? You, mm. you come up against difficult times, whether it's COVID or whatever else, and you, people tend to go into a little bit more of a selfish mode, a bit yeah. more victim. We were talking about you and your kind of development with your ability to manage your emotions and that sort of thing. What have you seen and observed in other fighters and athletes when you've been on either like ringside or gloves are off, like that kind of thing? Because you see them in their moment of mm. potential success, you know, like they're, they're like key moments in their life and you see how they manage that. Because obviously now you've got the ability to hold that energy and you're, yeah. the, you're the calm person in that situation. And I love the role you play in that. You're so good at doing it. What have you observed in people in those moments? Well, you're willing to make a deal with the devil at that stage. Mm. And I know that because I kind of did as well. You know, you, you're, you're willing to die in the ring. So when guys are saying, I'll die in there, you'll, before you beat me, I'll die, you believe it at the time until you get a bit older. And you might be thinking, Jesus, what was I thinking? Yeah. You know, when I see guys saying and doing things and acting certain ways, I think the emotions are raw because if you're fighting somebody 
I'm fighting you for, and I'm, I'm going to think about you 24-7 until our fight comes on. I'm going to think about you more than my wife and kids because I'm consumed by you. I'm training for you. I'm eating for you. And so, so, so that's the only time you can, boxing is the only place you can legally get killed. And so you've got to think to yourself, there are a lot of things you're saying and committing yourself to, you know, it's raw because you don't know any better until you get old. You think, Jesus, what was I thinking? Yeah. How many fighters have you seen that were amazing entertainment when they stood there and having toe-to-toe blast and battles? And then when they finish boxing and they're punch drunk and they can't tie their shoelaces and nobody cares about them, who cares? Mm-hmm. Who goes to visit them? Who watches them? Who looks out for them? Who cheers for them? Who claps for them? Who pays money to go and see them? So, so when you're committing yourself to such a sport, if you can detach it's a, it's a job. It's a bit, and there's only few people that can detach it. This is the job. It's my business. If you think you are boxing is who you are, you're going to struggle when you finish boxing because you're going to want people to talk to you and act around you the same way they did when you were yeah. world champion. Yeah. In, in the real world, that don't work. Yeah. And so whatever you do now as a fighter coming up or when you become champion, remember, it's going to kick you in the ass when you're no longer a champion. When you're no longer a fighter, and you and sometimes you're going to say and do things, you think, "Shit, why did I say that? Why did I do that?" Yeah, so interesting. What, what was your favourite one of those? What's what's been one of the ones when you've just been like, "Wow, this is gloves are off." Yeah. Well, uh, there's three. Okay. Uh, so it's a struggle. So the first one was Carl Frotch and George Groves. Yeah. That say- was the first time I realised this is a proper gig. This because Carl Frotch is. He's my favourite to work with. Okay. He's funny. He's dry. He can be a bit of a knob sometimes, but he knows it. <laughs> so sometimes he'll uh, he'll mention the eighty thousand, and yeah. then when the camera goes off him, he'll go, ah. and you're laughing, but he knows it pisses people off, and so he'll sneer. He'll be like, and I know he's a he's a funny guy. He's a pro- I proper like him. Uh, but when we did the gloves off with him and George Groves, and George Groves pulled him over the table, Carl wears his heart on his sleeve, and he pulled him back. Say, hey, we can all have a push in the pulse. And I'm like, shit, yeah. <laughs> really? This guy's like, look, give a shit the cameras. I'm like, shit. And that was the first one I thought, bollocks, these two hate each other. George has George's become a friend of mine. I, I love him to bits. Yeah. I think he's brilliant. He's, he, we talked a lot because I met him through the podcast and yeah. we stayed close. He spoke at my event recently and I was messaging him yeah. about speaking to you as well, actually. So he was giving me some questions. Um, but I love him. I think he's great. Like his mind games and the way he, he really knew what he was doing. He's the best. George, at the time I thought, he's a bit of a knob. <laughs> he is the best yeah. at getting under people's skin. He's so calm, isn't and he? And he's calm it? about how he drops yeah. it and everything. I'm like, and once I dropped, I thought, my man, <laughs> he's cool, man. Yeah. You know, and because I've seen, I've seen him get under the skin of so many fighters. And I thought, good on you, George. In fact, you, asked, you said that, didn't you, to Frotch? Yeah. You said, he's got under your skin, hasn't he? Yeah. And he admitted it. He was like, yeah, yeah he has got under my skin. Yeah, and that, that's what I'm saying. And George, and George just have done it. And so that was the first one I thought, this is for real. Mm. Then you can do one or two where people are trying to make out as what something, as a, and you can see straight through it. Yeah. The second one after that was Dylan White and Anthony Joshua. Mm. Now, a lot of it got cut out. Did it? To this day, they don't really like each other. To this day, you know, there's that... Out of the out of boxing, that street thing that's going on, as it's said, is that yeah. And when you see them both in an in air, watch them. You know they don't. They're like lions circling at one end, and they're like, <laughs> uh, there's no love lost there. And Dylan was saying some things, and I'm like, and, and and AJ's trying to be cool, saying, "Yo, listen, we don't want to be talking that here now. Get the camera off." 
because he's talking out of school, talking things about you, and like Dylan's not caring. You did this, you did that, and like ages like yo, yo. And so there was no. What are you doing in that moment? I'm sat there letting it go. I'm letting it go. I'm letting it go because I'm thinking, this is what it is. This is raw emotion. This is what it is. They'll edit it and cut out things that you can't say on there. But I'm like watching, thinking, this is for real. Yeah. It's for real. So you know you're going to have a good fight when these two fight because... And it was. Yeah, and it was. Was that, am I right in thinking that's the, when they threw the water on each other? No, no, that's Dylan White and uh, Doug Chisora. Oh, of course, yes. And that's the and that third was a table one. flipping That's everything. the third one. Okay, all right. Right, so that was the third one. And when that kicked off and they had to cut it after 20 minutes, trust me, that was mad where the point where Dylan went, launched for Derek, they went, the water was all over the floor. So they slipped on the floor. Derek, Big Dylan in the chest. If you were a man, scream. Like, ah, screaming. And Dylan had gone mad. Jumpers come off. And his boys are trying to get inside the inside, inside the room. Derek's boys are outside. So you're thinking, they shit outside. They shit inside. The security man shut the door of his all in the studio. So the cameramen are trying to part everybody up. You know, but he's trying to drag everybody apart from each other. Big fella, Scott Drummond, he's a big cameraman, nice guy, ex-rugby player. He's trying to pull him apart with his camera on his shoulder. <laughs> and I'm like, I've got all the somebody's angle. Boy, stop, stop. Fighting like hell. The security guy had shut the door. And I'm like, open the door. And he said, I'm containing it. I'm going to get out of here. And they were going mad, proper mad. And I thought, someone's going to get hurt here. And we managed to get Dylan out. And he was going crazy outside uh, he, his boys were outside he was going crazy so when he was outside he had one of his boys with him I don't know if I shared let's just say this but yeah I say it anyway he had one of his boys with him I can't remember the kid's name I'll not even say his name and he was like one of Dylan's soldiers and so so he was uh, as he was there he was stood outside as I say Dill Dill do you want to get him? He went, Dylan's like, get him. I'm like, that deep voice, he was so mad. My man just turned around like a soldier. Boom, walking to the door. I don't know if he was kitted up or anything. He's walking to the door. I'm like, Dylan, Dylan, stop him, Dylan. So I, I ran to the, the studio door. I stood in front of the studio door. My man's marching towards, Dylan, Dylan, call him out. And like, Dylan's looking, he was fuming, fuming. And then he said the guy's name, yo. And my man stopped, looked around, he went, and he just turned around like a soldier, boom, straight out. And I thought, hmm. what the fuck have I just seen here? And this, this was proper bad. You know, when you're hearing people scream because they're thinking, oh my God, what's going what's to happen here? It was bad. Yeah. And so I just thought, that was the best one. Best one ever. And, and if, they could, if you could see the stuff that they did on, if you ever got the footage of what actually happened, you would think, what the fuck? Oh, I love that job. It's the best job ever. <laughs> and the thing is, you've got to have the right person doing it because if you don't, what happens is they probably not want to be as raw as what they could be. Mm. So therefore, they'll watch the language. They'll not be as emotional. They'll not be, um, they'll not be as, as what they, they could have been. Uh, but you want the raw emotion. You want them to be who they want to be. You don't want them to be watching the P's and watching the Q's. You want that natural raw instinct. Yeah, nah, and yeah. I think I'm fortunate enough to be in a position where I get fighters, I know them. And they know I've boxed. So, and I ain't got no ego when I go in there. You know what I mean? So they can have a pop at me or whatever. I don't give a shit. <laughs> but I just want to get the best out of them. Yeah. And to me, it's like, great gig. Nah, you're perfect. Great gig. You're, you're brilliant at it. So you're talking earlier about the recipe, right? Or the ingredients that goes into the cake. We've spoken about discipline, persistence, and a load of other qualities and traits, which were really important to you becoming the champion. Longest reigning cruiserweight champion. 
most defenses 13, right? Yeah. 13 with 13 different fighters, yeah. which is outstanding and still that yeah. still stands today, that record. What of those qualities or those ingredients, because we spoke again about it being transferable, a lot of it, yeah. what, is, what have you transferred like specifically to make you as good as you are as a pundit, as good as you are in media and as a TV personality? Like what, what have you transferred? What specific okay, ones? So as I said, I left school, I wasn't a brainiac. My, ha my reading was that the ability of what of a 13 year old. Mm. Uh, and even as an adult, when I have to read, read publicly, I'm like, fucking hell, but you could still got a thing on your shoulder thinking shit, do I sound bad or whatever. And, and, um, and so what I found was if you just be yourself, if people like you, they like you. If you don't like you, they don't like you. Mm. Well, I found that out in boxing when people chat shit about you, you have a take it to heart or you think you don't know me personal, so I'm not taking it personal. When I'm in front of the camera, I'm just being myself. Uh, I have an opinion. If my opinion isn't of the masses, I get the I get the backlash, but I just think, well, that's my opinion. It's mm. create debate. You know, I'm not and I'm not saying these things to create debate. Because anything I say, I will give a justifiable argument why I said it. So, so some people like it, some people love it. Some people think, like you're talking about, come on, argue with me, let's have a conversation. You know, you've got to make people understand everybody's entitled to opinion. If I went on there and I just spoke and said what the things that people want to say, what makes me any different from any other fight that comes on there? So, so you've got to, it's, it's finding comfort in discomfort. So when you're in an uncomfortable situation, you've got to find comfort there and be able to perform there. Mm. And when you can perform there, that makes you different from anybody else. And, and was that discomfort when the record button went on and the camera was yeah. in your face like early? Yeah. And that's what that discomfort is. When that camera's on, you know there's millions of people watching you, mm. judging you, looking at your dress, how you say, how you pronounce a word, how you speak, you know, whatever. And they're judging you. That's nothing. You can't fight out of that. If you're in a fight in a ring, you can punch someone and get out of the way. Mm. But when someone's judging on what you say, your appearance and everything like that, you can't do nothing about that. Yeah. And it's very hard. It's like public speaking. You know, a lot of people will stand there and they think, shit, I can't public speak. But if it was one-on-one, -on -one, you could have that conversation. So when you public speak, it's about owning your shit. So if you know what you're talking about and you know who you are, get up there and do it. It doesn't matter if you're what, what they think of you. Your job is to, to deliver what you're delivering. That's your job. So I don't, my job isn't for you to like me, or like my shoes, or like my... Like, like, how, she, how my head shaved, my job is to talk about what I talk about. So then when you deliver that, people are warm to you because they think, you know what? Yeah, I get that. Mm. That inspires me that because he reminds me of somebody that lives next door. He reminds mm. me of somebody I know. It's not scripted. It's not something that, it's not something that's developed by a load of directors and producers, whatever. You've got to be able to be you and be comfortable in you, own your shit. Yeah. I now know I'm good at what I do. So, and I'm, I'm comfortable with it. So when I get up and speak anywhere and do anything, I look at that young boy that was scared to speak in front of adults. I look at that young boy that remembers being pulled left to right by his mum and dad. And I think, look how you've changed. Yeah. A little kid from Sydney Road, Crook, Sheffield, all of a sudden you're able to talk anywhere to anybody about anything. And if I don't know something, I'm going to be embarrassed and try and bullshit my way through the conversation. I'm like, yo, 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 I don't understand, explain. I don't know what that word means. Because the masses will probably be the same. They're super intelligent. I think, oh my God, you idiot. But I'm told, I'm real. So so most people think, you know what? I, I, how many times have you been in a conversation and uh, something's being said or a conversation's being had or words being used, you've no idea what they're talking about, but you bullshitted your way through it. If I don't know, 
I'm going to say, stop. <laughs> what are you talking about? And then and do it that way. I want to have a conversation. I want to be able to understand and converse and get it. That's how I learn. You know, and so now I understand when I was at school and I had a pen in my hand and it came to reading a book, that wasn't my skill. My skill is this. Yeah. And so, so there's many things that could change in schools and everything, how, how people talk uh, and how people are taught about educating people. Some people are good with their hands, some people are good with their mind, some people are good with their eye. You know, some people are good with that. But you've got to understand what someone is good at to bring the best out of them. And you've done such a great job because arguably you're more well-known, arguably, for being a TV pundit now than... Which makes me laugh, right? Because I get a lot of kids today say, you used to box? Yeah. And I, went, I, I actually think, yes, I've done yeah, my job. Yeah, that's it. Like, you know, the Gary Lineker, yeah. he's a TV presenter, Never right? Never England captain. Exactly. Yeah, and that's why, that's why I think, when people say that to me, I think, I like that. And even when you get feedback saying, Nelson, what do you know? And I laugh and I think, I've done a good yeah. job here. <laughs> and so, so to me, it's not an insult. It's a positive. Um, and, and I look at boxing today and I think, and I miss the camaraderie. I miss the banter in the gym. I miss being with the lads in the gym. I miss it like hell. Mm -hmm. But I understand the way I'm in life. So it's the pyramid of life. Mm. So I've, I've done my stint. Now you've got to look back and admire and appreciate what's happening behind you. You can't dance in a party when you shouldn't be there. <laughs> you got my old man. I ain't going to dance in a party. You'd be thinking, God, what's that old man doing here? It's just appreciating the time, appreciating the moment, appreciating what you've done. Amazing. We do the same three questions at the end of every episode. Okay. Quick fire round. The first is, is there anything you've either discovered or come across or just this on the horizon that you're particularly excited about at the moment? Oh, um... Yeah, might be a bit deep for people. I met somebody and he has introduced me to spirituality. Huh. And I know some people say, oh, here we go. But it's about self, about understanding self, uh, having belief and confidence in self. But you've got to understand yourself. You've got to understand why things have happened, why, think, why you do things, why you are the person you are. So I wonder if it happens when you just get to a certain age. <laughs> but, but to me... I actually, I'm curious and I'm not embarrassed about talking about that sort of stuff. Whereas before, you know, Ben always said things you avoid talking about publicly is sex, politics and religion because it creates division. Mm. I'm not embarrassed about actually saying, you know, I'm, I'm curious. It's got my attention. It's got my, you know, I, I get, I get a lot of things I do. I, I get it. I understand why I do it. I'm, I'm sort of understanding why I was put on this earth. You know, it might be an old man conversation. But to me, I actually, I'm always learning. I'm always looking. I'm good at human behavior. I'm good at getting people. I'm good at motivating people. I know that's what I'm good at. And so my job is, I've gone through all the experiences in my life for a reason. When I became world champion, I didn't think that's it, I've done. Hmm. I thought, is that it? I want more than this. Which is why I managed to defend it so many times unbeaten, because it wasn't enough. Some guys will become world champion and lose it after the first or second defense because they've reached their goal. They think, yes, I've done it. What do I use to motivate me now? When I became world champion, I was nowhere near it. I thought, oh, is that it? I want more than this. I don't know what it is, but I want it. Mm. So it's, it's, it's a better understanding of self and uh, it's just it's a great journey. Amazing. It's, it's so interesting because you know when you asked me before we could record, like, what do you do? Actually, that's what I do. I help people to build self-awareness, understand the internal wiring, the narratives and who they've become. Because I think that's all there really is. 
we get distracted by ego and desire and what we're conditioned to believe is important in the early years of our life. And we chase that until a point where something happens and we realize we're dissatisfied chasing that thing. But I have to smuggle that message in and yeah. feel like a bit of a Trojan horse sometimes because... Yeah, because you'll bring that conversation to someone and straight away they shut down. Yeah, yeah. And they go, here we go. Yeah. So, so, so you've got to set, put it in a language where people understand. Mm -hmm. I don't know big words. I'll, I'll give you examples. I'll give examples of situations. I'll tell you a story. And when I tell you a story, I'll, I'll let you be able to visualize everything that's happening in that story. So when I'm telling the story, you get it. You think, I get that. Mm -hmm. I'm with it. So it's how you deliver it. And so, so many people think like that, but they're scared to speak publicly about mm. it. I mean, I'm annoyed it's taken us that long to get to this bit, but <laughs> we'll, we'll leave it. <laughs> so the second one is one habit you would uh, encourage all listeners to undertake. One habit. Train the mind. Amazing. And any, anything specific to train the mind? You've mentioned the fasting, you mentioned uh, reading. Little, little tricks to train your mind. Fasting, if you're training, try and do it one day a week without music in your ears. Yeah, nice. Yeah, I loved listen, that example. Like, get your mind to listen to your body. Yeah. Final one. Imagine there's two versions of yourself. Take yourself back to a particularly challenging period in your life. There's one version who's gone on to achieve all the things that you did in both in the sport of boxing and in, uh, you know, with Sky and everything you've done in media. And there, there's another version that didn't go on to achieve all those things. What's the difference between the two? What's the key trait that separates the two? Well, those two people existed. <laughs> mm. um, and it's about self-belief. I didn't believe myself. And when I finally did believe myself, Brendan said... Before, he said, you don't have the, the, the confidence to match your ability. Now you have the confidence. You don't have the ability you had, but the ability you have is good enough to, to get you where you wanted to get, get mm. to. So it's about, again, it's about having the confidence to match your ability and believing in yourself. It's all that. That is everything. It's every, that, that is the difference between success and failure for me. And it's understanding that. So when I look back at the young version of me and I want to reach in the screen and slap the shit out of him <laughs> because he was so close to actually letting that penny drop. But then I would never change it because all the experiences I went through life to get to this point has made me the person I am today. I could have won the title at 22 years old. I'd have lost it in my first defense because I was a boy in a man's body. I wasn't mature enough to have that kind of responsibility. So I'd have messed up. So, so going through all the ups and downs, going to Germany for seven years and six, seven years and being on the road, that gave me time to have confidence about who I am and thinking, decide whether or not I wanted it enough. So when I wanted it enough, nobody gave me the chance to do it. So therefore, then I had to fight for it. So when I got it, I was never going to leave it. So that, I'd have that conversation with myself saying, Johnny, listen to me, trust me. Brendan pleaded, he used every word, he swore, he, he tried to smooch, he did everything to try and get that penny to drop. But once the penny drop, I'm like, dickhead. Oh my <laughs> God, you idiot. That's how I do it. Tony, thanks so much, mate. I've, I've loved it. Thank you. Pleasure being on. Thank you. So there it is. Thank you so much for joining us for episode one of season 14 with the very special Johnny Nelson. What an amazing story. I honestly loved that conversation so much. It took me two hours to drive up there and two hours to drive back and it was worth every minute just for the hour we had together. We actually probably had a good half an hour either side to catch up and speak outside of the podcast. And I'm hoping there's more things that I can have Johnny involved in in the future, whether that's events or all other projects that I'm working on. It was so much fun to be around. And the things that stood out to me more than anything else, I think, were towards the end, he spoke about knowing self 
and that's a big conversation and a big topic that often comes up on the podcast episodes I'm hosting and I was really interested to hear what he thought about that and what it's led to in his life and it sounds like he's a much rounder much more content happy person having gone through some of that process he also spoke a lot about showing emotions which has become something that's more and more accepted in modern days but such an amazing message all the same and when we discuss in take flight about taking serious leaps of faith and changing our life and following whatever our calling is of course it takes a lot of courage but the lesson i took from johnny more than anything else which he had ingrained in his brain or burned into his mind by his boxing coach brendan ingle was one of self-belief so how can we believe in ourselves because naturally when we have ambitions most of us have the same amount of doubt when we go through transformation we're stepping into the unknown we feel uncomfortable and with that comes a lack of self-belief so it was incredible to hear from his perspective looking back the thing that was more important than anything else was belief in himself and particularly when he spoke about his sparring session where he noticed the difference between how he fought in practice and how he fought in front of others but so much to take away and johnny is such a great guy if you want to follow him on social media it's at johnny nelson sky you can of course watch him on sky at any major boxing event and it's well worth having a look at anything else that he's putting out there as well Next week, I have another fantastic episode with the CEO of Calm Mental Health Charity. If you've listened to this podcast for a while, you'll know I've worked with Calm a number of occasions over the years, acting as an ambassador to do as much as I possibly can to help the charity and, in fact, help the cause of raising our awareness to mental health issues. The CEO of Calm is Simon Gunning, if you haven't heard of him before. He's a fantastic guy, and it was such a pleasure speaking with him, so I look forward to sharing that with you next week. In the meantime, stay positive, stay motivated, and of course, take flight.